0: Hello, how's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, focused compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon in our hotel room. Jeff, how's it going today?
1: It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you?
0: It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. So we are in Ohio right now. And I was just telling Jeff how excited I am to film this batch of podcasts for the week because we have ceilings that are probably about what, eight feet tall. Normally we record in um, a place with whoa, how tall the ceilings? Probably about know, twenty feet. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. pretty uh, pretty much taller. And fun fact: when we first started the podcast, um, uh, we used to record in you know eight foot ceilings, and it makes all the difference, believe it or not. Like when it comes to like echoes and stuff like that, I try my best to uh, minimize it on the back end with the the podcast, but it definitely does make a difference when you have twenty foot ceilings as opposed to eight foot ceilings. So we are in a hotel room. We are in. Ohio right now. Um, and we're going to do a podcast soon talking about our experience on our research trip we have uh, what's today today is sunday so we are coming up on a week and we have a whole nother week on the road and it certainly has been eventful so we're going to dedicate a whole podcast to that talking about that uh, this is the first time that you're tuning in with jeff and myself make sure to subscribe on both on youtube and the podcast side of things if you're watching on youtube right now um i don't know really if you'd want to be seeing what you know how we look i mean i have uh, a makeshift studio i I have this table in the hotel room that I had to pull the drawer out uh, so we could set these clamps to put our mics on them. And there's just cords everywhere. So we're going to save uh, you from looking at that. And we're just going to have something up on the screen. And of course, we're going to have interactive uh, podcasts this week as well. So be on the lookout for that. But make sure you hit the subscribe buttons. Um, if you like the work that we are doing here, make sure you save all of our podcasts because we are coming up on July 1st, where only of the 20 most recent uh, podcasts will be available, in the will be behind a paywall for $8 a month. A lot of people have been asking if we are going to still upload on YouTube, and the good news for everybody is that we will. All the videos will be up on YouTube, all the podcasts will be on YouTube, just as um, it normally is. We are just going to do different content for the individuals that pay for the premium podcast um, on a different, I guess, webpage. So uh, be on the lookout for that. We're gonna talk about that more soon. Uh, But in today's podcast... We're going to be talking about speculation versus investment. Ben Graham's definition versus your definition. And I want to read you something. So the Focus Compounding Daily that went out a few days ago, if you want to get access to those, um, follow me on Twitter, at Focus Compound. You have this quote from the piece that you put out. It says, investments are focused on the economics of the businesses as an unlisted entity as opposed to a listed entity. If... If was in caps. Mm-hmm. If an investment is truly an investment, it should matter little that there's a public quote. And this is something that you and I talk a lot about. Okay. This whole idea of being business analyst as opposed to being a portfolio manager, and really separating the two, and really just how to think about investments. Mm-hmm. And Warren Buffett has always said that sort of this whole value investing thing that either it grabs you right away or it just never does, paying you know 50 cents for a dollar or 80 cents for a dollar. And I think people logically understand that. I don't agree with him when he says that. I have said that I think the part that it either grabs you or it doesn't is the part of thinking of stocks as fractional ownerships of real businesses and really distinguishing the two and not being influenced by gyrations in the market. that have right. nothing to do with Long term intrinsic value of the business. So let's go over investment versus speculation, how you think about it, Ben Graham's definition versus Jeffrey Harvey Gannon's definition, and we'll kind of go from there.
1: Okay, so Ben Graham's definition was that an investment operation is one that promises protection of principal and an adequate um, return. So he was making that definition to separate it out from things at his time. Uh, mainly people focused on the idea that uh, capital gains of any form, whether in bonds or stocks, was speculation and investment was collecting income. Um And he wanted to make an argument for common stocks as being attractive and also for what we call today junk bonds, uh, as opposed to bonds that were at par and things like that. So the idea that your gains could come from capital gains was what was attractive to him. Uh, That's why he was trying to kind of make this distinction, because there were several experts who said that only bonds could be investment, not stocks um, or only stocks that could pay dividends and things like that. Uh, So. My definition, which a lot of people sort of uh, commented on, sent, sent me emails disagreeing with and stuff, is that speculation and investment, the big difference is that investment is looking at the business for your results. Where, which is similar to something Graham said, which we can get into, and speculation is looking for the price action move. So that is, in other words, you could be looking at the business somewhat, but you're expecting that people will pay a higher price in the market for it. Whereas in the case of an investment, you wouldn't need a, a quoted uh, market price. Now, many people will argue, of course, Both are speculation in the sense that both depend on what happens in the future, which is true. So investments, of course, depend on what happens in the future, too. But that would be true even if it was investments, say, in an asset. And the asset could deteriorate. Something could happen to it, whatever. So no matter what, it is going to depend on what happens in the future for you. Um, Only if you bought something and then immediately liquidated or something could it avoid doing that. So it's always going to be future-oriented. But I think the speculation part gets into the Keynesian Beauty Contest idea, which is that you're worried about what the market will value something at. So sometimes we'll look at a stock and say it's clearly cheap, but what will cause the market to ever value it higher? And I don't know. But we know that it's worth more um, the, the assets it controls, the businesses it controls are worth more than the market value put on it. But there's some reason why it's not happening right now. So Graham, I think would consider that investment. And I certainly would consider that an investment and not a speculation.
0: Yeah. And, and the example that you did give in that piece was you were talking about if you purchase stock today, really to, I guess, speculate on the outcome of the election that's coming up, uh, for, sure. for the president, um, and then look to sell right after it, or like, sort of right
1: after it, you consider that a speculation. Yeah, that's the other thing I kind of got into, which is um, you could think of a speculation as being something that your plan going into it has something to do with an actual event or timing of some sort, uh, whereas an investment has to do with uh, the price that you have in the business results, right? So if you ever say to yourself, well, I'll buy this. And if it doesn't work out in a year or something, I'll sell it, or I'll buy this. And then after such and such a date, I'll sell it. Like, if you hear someone say, I plan to buy this, and then I'll sell it when whatever happens with COVID or whatever happens with interest rates or whatever, some event, that's probably a speculation. Because the the issue with that is that you're counting on two things. One, you're counting on something actually happening. So someone winning the election or not winning the election or something like that. But two, you're actually doing the Keynesian beauty contest part of it because you actually aren't making a direct bet on that. You have to keep that in mind. So you're not directly going to benefit whether someone wins or loses an election. You will only benefit to the extent that you're also right about what that means for the price of the stock. So like you could be um, right recently, let's say a few months ago about uh, the... You could have correctly predicted what would happen with how COVID would spread, but stocks went up. And it's unlikely that you would have um, predicted both what would have happened with the virus and how much stocks would have gone up in how short a time. So you don't just have to be right about the event. You have to be right about people's reactions to it. And that's the kind of second level part of speculation. You have to be right about other people's reactions to events, not just the events themselves. So, when people were disagreeing with
0: you, you were talking about that what? They were saying because even if you're investing, right,
1: that you're thinking about the future price of the company. Is that what they were saying? So, most people who talk to me, I would say, um, feel that there isn't much of a distinction between investment and speculation. Okay. Even most of our listeners feel that there's very little distinction between investment and speculation, I would say. And that um, if you buy a stock and it works out, then... That is not very different, whether it was an investment or a speculation, how it worked out. And it just did you were right or wrong based on how the market reacted to it. And secondly, they're very concerned with how the market will realize value. And that's the big difference, I would say, with investment versus speculation in terms of practitioners of it. People who think about investments generally think much less so about how it will happen. I always go back to Ben Graham quote when he was in the Senate testimony and he said, the senator asked him, How do you do that You advertise? How does it ever happen? And sometimes we talk about that with the stock. you will say to me like, how does this actually happen that it goes up? And the answer is I don't know. But if you look back in history, it did go up a lot in the past and stuff like, why did that happen? Why does a stock that people aren't paying attention to have that happen to it? Why does a stock sometimes go up on bad news when it's super cheap? You know, sometimes people are shocked when a stock goes up. Um, Like say when stocks cruise line stocks and, you know, uh, things that were arcades and restaurants and stuff started going up. Well, there's some logic to that because they were down so cheap. So it doesn't even take good news, actually. It just takes news not getting much, much worse than yeah. people could have ever feared for it to go up if it gets down to a certain price. Um, so I, I think investment – so in that sense, most people will turn down an idea that doesn't have a catalyst, right? There's no speculative aspect to it that they can see in the market. Um, so like if it's a controlled company, for instance – uh japanese net nets for instance things that they don't believe will be sold immediately and they don't know why the market will react um to value them higher a lot of asset plays people say that with and i don't know why it happens necessarily but it does you know there's sort of an infinite number of ways in which the value could be realized if it's cheap enough Mm -hmm. um you know if you have a pile of cash for instance i don't know what will happen But a company could choose to liquidate. Then you'd have a huge gain if you bought it for less than cash. Company could choose to buy another company. And if it does that, then the market will react to the earnings, you know, or the market sometimes comes around to realizing that it's a good opportunity. Do you think, Investors, mm-hmm. or maybe even speculators, but let's just
0: say investors are too short-sighted with it because we've done a lot of podcasts where, okay, well, if this happens or if an event happens over ten years, and you know you can make a hundred to two hundred percent, you know, on the upside, those odds could be something that you could play with. Do you think it's because investors they think too much like one to two years, and then especially if markets are going up, that
1: influences the way that they re- they react? Yeah. So I think that exactly what happens. I mean, and I think it happens from them owning it. So, I don't think they necessarily feel that way before they own it. They can look back at the past and see the stock went nowhere for four years and they're okay with that. But then if they buy it and it goes nowhere for two years, then they will sell it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's usually what happens. And the stock, of course, doesn't know you own it. So... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because we were we were yeah, right. We were talking about this, how mm-hmm. you read a lot of stuff, you know,
0: about Buffett in his early days or the snowball, and they could be like, Oh, well, he bought this stock for five years right. before, you know, and, and the stock went nowhere and then it like tripled or something like yep. that. And we read it at the present saying, Oh, five years, that's like that's you know, like five minutes, right? Mm-hmm. That's nothing. But It takes a lot of discipline to stay with it for five years when you're actually living. I mean, think how much your life has probably changed in five years. That's a very long time. Yeah. You know? So I think it comes down to the discipline, um, you know, to, I guess, see it out and really think, okay, well, I bought it, you know, here and I still think this could happen. And, you know, the
1: probability of still getting a decent IRR is something that you're constantly weighing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, so... Whereas I would say a speculation is like I gave the example on this podcast a long time ago, where I had suggested um, I did a write up of something. I did not um, buy it. I did not put it on this trade, but I did write up in which I said basically, here's a company which is changing into uh, ethanol. It was selling out of its existing business and buying ethanol. And here's another company which already owns ethanol plants, the same exact ones that this company will be buying, same exact kinds uh, of economics. And um, that company was called whatever ethanol. Mm -hmm. And the other one was called whatever and then totally different industry. So it wasn't advertising, it was an ethanol company, and it wasn't listed in things as an ethanol company yet. That's not the code for the industry it was in for stocks and stuff. Um, One of them was at like, say, two times book or something, and the other was at, like, 0.5 times book. So the speculation there is they're both ethanol companies. Eventually, the market will recognize both of them as ethanol companies. Now, and, like, in that case, the company then changed its name to whatever, ethanol, and, of course, the two prices converge. So it's not necessarily a, a mistake to speculate. I think that sometimes you can predict the how the market will respond to some things in the future eventually. Um, I think that's all you can do in commodity things and stuff like that sometimes. But I think that that is different what we're talking about, because that doesn't have to do with the business results that we're talking about. And in that case, you'll notice that to do an effective speculation, I felt you had to be long one side and short another. I didn't feel that either one on its own was a safe speculation. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to the beauty
0: contest, right? People realizing Right, because
1: like the, it was purely based on the perception, right? So it had nothing, I didn't have any opinion about which um, business would do well or something. I just had an opinion that they were, th- the market was thinking of one, the market cared about whether it could bet on as an ethanol stock or not. And since one thing, since they were both going to be an ethanol stock, in a few years, ethanol business. And eventually, presumably, they would change their name and do things like that. Then there would be a difference of how it was viewed by the market, but not a difference in terms of the business. Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm kind of curious. We met with a gentleman in Nashville and we were talking yeah. about this whole I guess, idea of value trading. And I know people reach out Mm -hmm. to you a lot about it. What do you consider that? Is that speculation? Is that investment? Because let's say you have a core position. Everyone does it sort of different. Um, But I know people have spoken to where where they'll have like a core position, but they sort of trade around the position. And I don't know how exactly they do it based on price or based on it goes up here. So they may pull some off. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? And would you call that still investing because maybe they have a core position or is that more right. like a speculation?
1: Yeah, I mean, it depends on how you do it. So we should say, I mean, I should say, first of all, that if it is speculation, it's a unusually smart form of speculation. So there is an advantage um, theoretically, I think it's too difficult to pull off for the average investor in terms of their frictional costs involved and things like that. But theoretically, there is actually an advantage having two assets, and so we'll use the example of two assets, so like two asset classes. So, say that you owned um, gold and and the S and P five hundred, right, fifty percent, fifty percent. On any day in which it gets unbalanced, you rebalance it, and you keep doing that, and the reason why that would work, if it's following a random walk, if those two things are following a random walk is that you should actually get better results from doing that than holding both of them indefinitely forever. Now, in reality, it won't work that well, for simple reason. In the very long run, the S&P 500 will outperform gold. So you're allocating something to an inferior asset. So that alone will cause huge problems. And then also, there are some costs associated with constantly trading something like every day. But if there were no costs to that, and if you could find two assets that both were equally good, you could get a performance better than both of the assets by simply buying whatever just dropped today or this month or whatever, and selling whatever um, went up in price. And that really would add to your returns. So it's an even better form of diversification, right? But like I said, it's not actually practical. Because you would need to find two assets which had the same returns, right? But let's say theoretically, among stocks, that could happen, right? So it could happen that maybe you feel you can find three or five stocks or whatever, however, it might be. Let's say five stocks. So you find five stocks that you truly believe are equally all good. Now, the problem here is that they're truly equally all good because it's going to generally be the case that the businesses are actually not that close to each other and that. You may sell the one that got is a lot better business. And if you do that, that sort of is like moving you're out, that's sort of like where I gave the example of S&P 500 and gold. The problem with it is you're allocating 50% all the time to gold. In this case, you might be selling the thing that's better and buying the thing that's worse. But in theory, if you own five stocks, you like them all the same. One goes up 20%, one goes down 20% at the same time or whatever. Yes, it does make sense to sell the one that went up and buy the one that went down. There are some costs associated with this, and psychologically, I think the biggest issue for most people is going to be if they get below a certain level, they're going to sell out of it entirely. But if you do what I just said, which is like have a core number of stocks that you own, and then have limits. So let's say let's say you had um, I don't know, let's say five stocks, but you could never own more than thirty percent in any one stock or less than ten. If you did that and kept rebalancing, then yeah, that kind of value trading would make sense. But the problem will be if you go much below that, you get to the point where you actually eliminate a position. And so generally, when I talk to people, if they eliminate a position, what happens is that they don't get back into it, right? But it is true that some stocks you could take advantage of the volatility, right? And that's a speculation, some things might get ahead of themselves. That is true for us. When we talk about things, we don't do that. But it's certainly true that in some stocks we own, we can look at them and say, do we think this one got ahead of itself? In the sense that did it go up too much in a short period of time? Yeah, we can definitely say that the news didn't justify it. Now, that doesn't mean that it's expensive today, but it does mean that it is less attractive versus another stock when we can tell that. So we can tell that something that went up 50% and something else went up 10% in the same half year. Sometimes there isn't much of a justification for that. Sometimes we think that they both um, had similar kind of business results, right? But that doesn't mean that the 50% up increase isn't warranted because we try to buy at a cheap price and that should be the same thing for anyone doing it so it doesn't mean you should sell something just because it rises 50 percent, or you should buy more something just because it drops but it is theoretically true that if you were to if you could find a set group of stocks it could be five it could be ten whatever that you like truly equally and you made sure you never got out of any of them then rebalancing yeah that would be a good way for value trading what about this whole idea of not needing
0: the quoted price of the stock so as an investor you care about the business fundamentals which comes out you know once a quarter right and we've talked about if you have a 3 or 4 stock portfolio Mm-hmm. It's interesting how people could look at that and be like, "Wow, that is pretty concentrated." Right. Where if you ever meet somebody in person and they're like, "Oh, yeah, I'm an investor and I'm an investor in three to four companies," they'd be like, "Wow, how do you how are you an investor in so many companies? That sounds like you must be pretty busy, mm-hmm. right?" So there's a clear uh difference between you know people that participate in the market and people you know just uh, as private investors. Um, you know, so how do you I guess distinguish the two and how do you think like you know? Or, why do you think, I guess, the quoted price doesn't matter? I mean, because there's times where, I mean, you don't, I know you don't check the quotes during the day and it, it doesn't bother you. And there's a lot of people that, make their decisions daily right based on you know the markets what's going on as opposed to the actual fundamentals right of the
1: company right so there's two ways that we could look at that one way is what we just talked about the value trading thing so although value trading sounds attractive and what I just said and academics would say okay well you could get a better advantage from that like I said that's a formulaic approach that could theoretically work most formulas like that can't really work but like there's a few dollar cost averaging and that one that I just described of rebalancing which really could work and add return uh, to your returns um, However, if you think about it in the long run, let's think about some stocks that are like a good stock to own for the long term. So Buffett made some purchases that worked out really well for 10 years or more. What are the advantages of value trading it versus just sticking into it? And that's the problem. The advantages of value trading are extremely small in those cases. So the problem is that it becomes less and less important, the more correct you were in the investment and how long you hold it. So in very good stocks, it would be a very, very little benefit to value trade them. Whereas in things that are staying at about the same price, it would be a great benefit to do that in things things so like for instance if you were value trading static sort of things like commodities and stuff that would make a lot more sense but if you're trying to value trade Phil Fisher type growth things that would be a problem and then the other part of it is like what Ben Graham talked about where he said um, that uh, certain mortgages that were publicly traded, right? People uh, were actually harmed by the fact they had a public quote on them because they could see they were down 90% or whatever. When the people who had those exact same mortgages in the private market, they just had a mortgage on one building, um, those people kept getting their rent. And so it's obvious that's true um, that they, they kept making the loan payments because... Uh, those bonds did recover as I shouldn't just say they recovered in price. What's important about them is they did not default. So they plunged in value like everything else during the depression, but they never had um, mispayments and things like that. So you always collected the income and then you also collect everything in maturity. Now it's true, the prices should have dropped because the risks increased and stuff. And if you didn't have a public market for something, like say you don't have a public market and you own an apartment building during COVID, well, of course, you're still concerned that you're not gonna get paid as much and the risks have gone up, right? That you're not gonna get uh, collect as much rent each month. And so you're aware of those risks, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same as the quoted risk that you would have and what would happen there. And some people will, f- some people, Uh, don't use their judgment on the quoted risk. Now, the fact there's quotes is not a bad thing. That is a benefit because it means that you can buy sometimes and you can sell when things really get out of hand. The only problem is that when the market disagrees with you, um, it doesn't make sense to take the market's opinion. Okay, so it it makes sense to take advantage of the market, but it doesn't make sense to use it as an input in deciding what how you're going to value things. And that's really the risky part for it. And that seems to be the common theme. A lot
0: of people, they allow the market to, you know, it's almost like they're servant to the the market as opposed to make the market you know to you where you could take advantage of prices and stuff like that. Right.
1: So if you think that the appraisal of the assets it owns is down 50% or you think that the earnings are down 50% or sales are down 50%, it could be perfectly justifiable for you to cut in half your estimate of its worth. But if the stock just fell 50%, it may not be. Mm-hmm. You may agree with it. So it may be that COVID happened and stuff, and you agree that my restaurant stock is worth 50% less. But it could also be that you really feel that's not true. And if you don't feel it's true, you shouldn't mark down the value yourself if you have a different opinion. Mm. Then that's what I was going to ask you, right?
0: At what point are you like, okay, maybe the market is right about this? Well, maybe because, I mean, everyone mm -hmm. has their own method of doing valuations and stuff like that.
1: Right. Well, the market might be right about it. And about things that you know little, it's always better. The market's estimate is always better than your estimate, of course. But the more knowledgeable you are about it, the less likely it is that the market is correct and you're wrong. It's also worth keeping in mind, and this is very important, there's a tendency for people to assume that the market price as of this moment is the one to use and is the correct one. But you have to remember that if that's true, the market price at this moment is actually disagreeing with the market price. So like, for instance, if a, if a stock drops 20% today, right? People realize that and see how it rated the news and stuff. Just think about it that way. They only look at today's price. They don't really think about the fact that, okay, that actually means the market is disagreeing with itself as of yesterday by 20% and as of it. So you have to remember it's an outlier the central tendency of the price over time is actually a better indicator for you. So yes, if you're saying what should like uh, someone appraise something at, if we had to guess, do we use a single expert or do we use, what do we do? It is true that the the long-term average price of something in the market is probably a pretty accurate gauge of its value. But you have to be careful. A lot of times people are using the highest high it's ever had or the lowest low. You should be a little careful by that. I'm not sure those are much more reliable than using a single expert's opinion or something like that. Mm-hmm. I wonder, I mean, how often do you think people should check quotes? Obviously, if you work in the business, it's a
0: little bit different. Even uh, Buffett sits here with CNBC on all day.
1: I really personally think you should only check quotes when you could take advantage of them. So I see no point in checking. Like, I've talked to some people. I'm like, well, are you going to... How much would it have to move for you to sell this stock or to buy this stock or something? like? And some people say basically, oh, I could just look for the news for that because I'm not going to buy or sell based on moves that happen. I mean, it's a rare stock where you would need to check it more than once a week in the sense for the average person that would make a difference whether they would buy or sell. Mm-hmm. So within a week, you're kind of just – you're looking at it for the experience of looking at it and stuff. I mean, it may be that you decide to buy it at that moment. Now, there are stocks in – dramatic moments that move a lot more than that but for most people i talk to really the stock never makes a move in a week that's big enough that would change their opinions about things now stock moves accompanied by news might be yeah but that's different because that's also the news component of it mm-hmm. so that's absolutely true you can definitely so if you're asking like do you, should you look at stock moves and look at um press releases on earnings release day yeah but that's different right mm-hmm. so between quarters it, you know it's going to be a lot less important Cool. Well,
0: I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If you're listening on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. If you're listening on the podcast side things, uh, hit that subscribe button and a rating and review goes a very long way for us. Uh, make sure you download our backlog. We have over 220 different podcasts now. Um, and on July 1st, which is coming up, uh, 20 of the most recent podcasts will be available for free. The rest will be behind a $8 backlog. I want to thank everybody so much for the support and we will see you in the next podcast.